Hey, what's up? Welcome to KT Confidential, the real estate podcast. In today's episode, we are here with Neil Drapal from Canadian Mortgage Services talking about the 2024 mortgage forecast. Enjoy. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's nice to finally do it. Um, for everybody listening, welcome back to KT Confidential, the real estate podcast. Today we have a guest on the show, which we don't do enough. We've got Neil Drapal from Canadian Mortgage Services. And we're going to talk mortgages and finances today. Great. Um, I think I know a little bit about that topic. So Yeah. I actually, I really like your website, by the way. Thank you. It's very easy to navigate. I was listening to some of your podcasts. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah we put a lot of time into the website. It's a huge component of our business. So, so you and I met... I don't remember when it was now. Oh, let me tell the story. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so I saw... Well, hang on, hang on. Okay. Continue that. Tell the story, but then get into your origin story. Tell My, tell uh, the listeners and the makes watchers sound like a and superhero. followers a little bit about you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I met <laughs> Adrian at LA Fitness, but it's because I had seen an ad on Instagram that you guys had started doing. Um, I remember... Who, very clearly. I actually remember the topic too. It was something about buying a house versus getting married, which I'm sure you guys got a lot of heat for. I think I was doing uh, deadlifts or squats or something. Yeah, you were. And then, so I pulled up the ad because I had saved the ad. That was the last time he's done that was a deadlift. Totally the last time I was there, yeah. <laughs> I had saved the ad because I wanted to show my business partner I'm in and just say like, I really like what they're doing here. And I started following you guys and watching your videos and I'm um, like, we should start doing this. But then I saw you at the gym. And so I pulled up the ad. I'm like, is this you? And you were like, yeah. And then we and started I pulled out my Sharpie and said, where do you want me to sign? But origin story. So, um, so I've been in the business now for 11 years, started in 2012. And um, <clears throat> so my dad actually, so it's a business my dad started in 1980. Go back further. Go back further? Go back further. Okay. Where were you born? Where were you born? Seriously, what brought just, you? Yes. Where was I born? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was born. You can summarize the first couple of decades, but. <laughs> I was born at uh, Peel Memorial Hospital, which okay. is no longer a hospital. Yeah. Um, it's probably just a medical building now uh, in Brampton. And uh, so born and raised in Brampton. Um, and <laughs> this seems like a stretch, man. No, really? That yeah. far back? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know how, how far. Okay. So as a kid played hockey and soccer. Um, so that was my thing, which I wish I never stopped because I was really good. I don't know why I stopped actually. I think just hit high school and just focused on that for whatever reason. Um, uh, so I wish I still played and maybe I'll get back into it eventually. I think there's a lot of people uh, like that who they wish they are parents. Like I parent, I, I respect a lot of parents who push their kids to do so do things I. despite wanting to give up. Yeah. I wish my parents had done that and they didn't. And I wish they did because not that I would have taken it very far, but I really did enjoy it. And it's like, it feels like there's something missing from my life now because I don't have that extracurricular. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to get back into it. But um, anyways. Hockey or soccer? Um, if I had to pick one, probably hockey. Soccer's still fun. Still enjoy playing, but. Hockey for sure. When when was the last time you did like a stick and puck or actually shot a puck? When was the last time? Uh, you a charity game that we did when I was in university. So it's been a while. Yeah. At least 15 years. Wow. Yeah. You two should just go. You go to the rink sometimes on a, don't they have those days where you can just stick, stick and It's stick called and, stick and puck. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. And um, you have to wear a helmet. So helmet, gloves, stick and puck. Yep. And you bring a few pucks and uh, now... There's no goalie. It, well, it depends. If you get enough people to go, then you get into what they call shinny. I was mm. going to ask, is shinny the same thing as stick and puck? No. What is stick no, and puck? So What's the difference? Stick and puck, you're not wearing any equipment. Oh, okay. Um, you're just going like you are. Uh, you have to wear a helmet. Yeah. But everything else is... And, and obviously, you just can go by yourself and just stick handle and shoot and whatever. Uh, shinny is where you'll get a group Play of, game. yeah, 12 people. Just for more. fun. And that's like equipment from the waist down usually. Or is it full? Shinny? Yeah. I think now they might even be full. You have to be fully okay. geared up. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so last, probably last February, I decided this year, which I haven't yet because of a couple of injuries, but um, I'd get back into the stick and puck just to get the feel. Because when you haven't played for so many years, like you and I, yeah. it's um, it's weird at first, but it's great exercise. And we're blessed in Milton to be surrounded by a lot of rinks. Mm-hmm. So there's always an opportunity to go. <clears throat> so I got uh, I got some new gear last year when it went on sale. So maybe yeah. that'll be uh, an out. opportunity. I yes. still have my bag full of gear that I'm sure still fits. So I'll make do. after university, after you. So we, even before university, before, um, yeah. I, so my dad, at, when the major recession hit in the early nineties, he closed down his office and he had employees working for him. Um, a lot of them, unfortunately were doing shady things and taking money under the table and he hated that. So he closed down the office, kind of fired everybody, started working from home ever since. So growing up my entire childhood, I knew about the business. I was kind of involved in it. So he was always in mortgage, the mortgage industry. Since 1988. Yeah. Yeah. That's when he started the business. So that guy saw every. (laughs) He's been through every phase. He's been through every recession, every up and down. So it meant a lot too, because it's like now in hindsight, it was the year I was born. That's not why he did it. It was just all coincidence, but it just, it felt like the right thing to get into. And growing up, uh, I was involved in the business from helping him send faxes to answering the phones at times. Um, so I was so involved in it. I, I We were actually cleaning out the basement a couple of years ago and I had found logos that I created for him <laughs> on sticky notes with the dates on them. And they were from like when I was like seven or eight years old or something like oh, that. Wow. So it was really cool. That's cool. That's yeah, neat. I've had a lot of involvement. It's been very close to me, but I never felt obligated to get into it. Um, it's just something I felt kind of like, it was like a rite of passage. It just felt like the honorable thing to do was to take over the business or be a part of it. And I was excited to. So even though I went to university, I went strictly because it felt like the right thing to do, I guess, get a post-secondary education. Maybe that's not so true anymore for people and for people that don't go, I don't blame them. Cause I mean, you learn some skills, but a lot of people don't end up working in the field that they get a degree in. Um, but I went to university anyways. And then after that, I was just ready to, to just hop in with both feet and get involved in the business. And my dad was like, I really think you should just go out there, work for somebody else for a while and get some experience. And I'm stubborn. So I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm ready to do this now. And um, so Within months of finishing university, I got my license and uh, I didn't convince my business partner and brother-in-law to get into it as well. But my dad had always mentioned to him, hey, you should get into the business. And like he was trying to invite everybody from the family to get into it. And uh, and and so Amin ended up getting his license too. And I still remember the first day we kind of set up shop in the basement, which was my dad's office at the time. And he had renovated to, he renovated it to be an office. Um, so it felt like an office, but I put a pot of coffee on and I kind of just sat there at the desk and twiddled my thumbs and waited for yeah. calls to come in. And I still remember <laughs> yeah, the first deal I ever did. So, um, so that's how I am. People here. say, don't get into business with family. Yeah. What is your response to people that say that? Um, I get why people say that. <laughs> I, I understand it. Uh, my dad and I butt heads in the beginning because I wanted to do things in a certain way, even though I didn't really have a say. Very inexperienced. All I knew was that I was creative and I wanted to do certain things with the business. Um, and he was maybe less creative, but very experienced in the work itself. And so we clashed a little bit in the beginning And then I don't remember how long it took, but eventually we got to a phase where he felt confident in our ability to run the business uh, the way we wanted to. And and that's kind of when his involvement phased out. Um, He's still involved, but he probably will be retiring his license soon just so he can truly enjoy retirement. This seems uh, like it's in your blood then. It's natural for you. It feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of pride that comes with it for that reason. And I think it could have been anything. I, I do love what we do, but I think it could have been any family business and I would have felt that way. Some people want nothing to do with a family business and I wanted everything to do with it. So it, it, I don't think it would have mattered what he was doing, but I'm happy that we did it and we got really good at it. So and now we're here. 
So now we're going to pick your brain. Yeah. Dive into all of your experience. Okay. We're going to throw some questions out at you. Sure. So totally unscripted for those of you watching or listening. Adrian, do you... So just so everybody knows, this was actually not really planned because the two of you... We're going to get together for a coffee or something. That was chat. the original plan. Yes. Yeah. So we are having a coffee and chatting. It just happens to be, we turned it into With a some podcast. cameras and lights. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. And we, and, and Neil was um, surprised to hear, perhaps would be the right word, that we don't edit from the perspective of <laughs> there's no cutting. I was, Whatever <laughs> we say gets, is, is on the podcast. Video and audio. I was just worried about saying something stupid. And then we say hoping, stupid things all the time. You're right. You do. And, and then we watch call each other out on it. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> so absolutely stupid. right. Yeah. That was dumb. <laughs> you want to get going with yeah, your so topics the premise, and the premise of um, today was, well, the reason, first of all, which I'll come oh, back to. but You the, want another don't? Filler words, right, Robbie? Yes, we've been working on avoiding filler words. I've been and practicing. Over sometimes the years. I mean speaking slower and yeah. being more and, thoughtful of what we say. And last or a couple of podcasts ago, we learned what filler words are—the actual words. Yes, I don't remember them. You just learned what filler words are. Not the premise of them, but oh. the actual words that are generally used as filler uh, okay. words. Okay, like that. And you say, "Ah, oh, okay." I think that's okay, though. Is it? I think so. We'll find out. Well, where's we'll they, Robbie? We'll see what AI removes. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know. That's the one that we debated. Like, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, ahs and ums. So the, the the reason I wanted to meet with you originally was because we're, call it a pilot program uh, that I'd like, oh, damn it. See, now I'm very <laughs> cognizant of But you paused. You still yes. paused and threw in the, ah, uh, it's really hard to master. It is. So, uh, we wanted to pilot program, <laughs> pilot this program where, so what happened was the other day, the other day, I sent out an email. So, we have two companies. One is uh, the Cormenti Trout team, real estate mm-hmm. and leasing, uh, uh, sales and leasing. And then we have uh, KT Property Management, where we manage residential properties. And I sent out an email recently My to- rentee to several, well, to all of the tenants in our portfolio, which is about, I think there's like 40 people. And the premise of that was one, just to notify them of things to do during the winter season, such as, well, the primary reason was don't use salt on concrete. Yeah. Okay. Because we've had issues with that. And then I just dropped in a little thing at the bottom and made up this thing called the path to ownership and just said, Hey, we're working with several tenants who would like to be homeowners and we've got them on our path to ownership program where we're working them through the process to get them there. Okay. And I said, if you'd like to get involved, fill in this form. <clears throat> and we had two people respond. And I think there's a lot of tenants out there that would like to become homeowners. So the reason I wanted to meet with you originally was um, primarily to get your input on how that could look from a mortgage broker's perspective. Okay. Like my <clears throat> thought was we connect the tenant with the right people to get them on that path. We also have a money savings tips guide, which I think a lot of people can benefit from, from a savings perspective, looking for opportunities to save and opportunities to earn extra income. Okay. But where a mortgage broker would come in is giving them a true understanding of what they need to, what they can afford or what they need to do to be able to afford it. Okay. So do you get a lot of people that come in for a mortgage approval and they're like, expecting to be approved for X amount of money and then they realize they can't afford a house at all? Yeah, it happens all the time. And it also happens in the reverse way too, where people think they won't be able to get qualified and, and they can. It's just because the math doesn't lie and it's not an easy calculation to kind of figure out on your own. You can go and use a mortgage calculator online, but there's a lot of variables there that are not included in those calculators. Mortgages are just a big gray area. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, like so debt as an example, um, people underestimate the the amount of debt that they have or they they include the wrong debts that are not generally uh, accounted for in GDS, TDS ratios. So it kind of skews numbers a bit. Um, A lot of these, uh, a lot of 
A lot of these calculators, I don't believe are calibrated to account for the stress test and accurate property taxes too. So people are just putting in filler numbers in there. And I just don't think it's the most accurate way. Now they are fairly accurate. I just think there is a big margin of error that occurs when people are trying to do it on their own. But you'd be surprised. There are people that think they can afford a very expensive house and, and a large mortgage and they can't because they don't have their finances in, in order. So they just see the monthly payment and say, okay, that's manageable, but they don't understand what it takes to actually get approved for that. So a ton of people, actually the funny thing, a, a ton of people will compare just what they're paying in rent to a mortgage payment and say, well, if I'm paying this in rent, <clears throat> right. I can pay this for a mortgage. Well, in theory, that's true. If you can afford $4,000 a month for rent, I know that's an exaggeration, but you can, then you can not afford so much anymore. Maybe not. Yeah. So then you can afford 4,000 in a mortgage payment. But the the problem with rent is there aren't measure, measures in place to make sure that you can afford everything else. There aren't debt servicing ratios, so to right. speak. So are is your rental payment, what does that represent? Is that 70% of your net income? Is it 80%? Who knows? But the banks have measures in place to make sure that you can only afford a certain percentage of your gross or net income or household income so that there's a buffer for all of life's expenses, car payments, food, groceries, taxes, you name it, right? So that's that's one thing that when people are using those online calculators, they just can't make that judgment for themselves. So they're not as accurate. Um, but to your point, a lot of the times people think they can afford something and in reality they can't or on paper they can't. And then the opposite is also true where they have no idea because they've never thought about it to that degree. I think I've told this story before, maybe 20 years, it would have been 20 years ago, almost exactly. I was the financial services manager at a Lexus dealership. And as Adrian knows, because he was in that position, you sit down with somebody that's looking to lease a vehicle. You take their credit application and then the financial services manager reviews that application and sends it in that case to Toyota Financial Services or to potentially another lender, Bank of Nova Scotia, Bank of Montreal, whatever. So I took this application for a gentleman that wanted to buy a Lexus convertible, the SC400. And at that time it nice was a nice car. That was like the creme de la creme back in the early 2000s. And at that time it was a $110,000 car. There weren't a lot of vehicles over a hundred grand in the luxury market even. Anyway, the salesperson assisting him was one of our highest producing Lexus salespeople, one of the highest producers in the country. So you would have thought, you know, that person is qualified and they went down the path of spending hours together, building the car, appraising their old car, all of this. Anyways, so I take the application. He was the conductor of the Toronto Symphony making $300,000 a year. Back then. Back then. Yeah. A lot of coin. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm like, whew, no brainer, right? Filling it in, send it off to, back then you had to fax it, fax, uh, fax it over to Toyota. I get a call later that afternoon and they sent a fax back, declined. I'm like, declined? So I call them back. I'm like, uh, what's up with this decline? Guy was at like 95 or something percent of his debt servicing. Wow. On a $300,000 income. So in the car industry, you guys debt service as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I say you guys, sorry, just because you have car experience, yeah. Yeah. but not that you do that anymore. Yeah. But you guys debt they service as at, well? Okay. They look yeah. at the TDSR. They look at the, yeah, they look at, well, it's very similar. So they look at the debt servicing and then they also look at the loan to value. So okay. you get, I remember there was times when, yes. I remember one specific time I had somebody and they actually approved it for some reason, but 
we had a Hyundai Accent, which was maybe a ten to fifteen thousand dollar car, yeah, max twenty. Yeah, and I don't even think it was that high. But this, the finance amount was thirty, and it was because they were burying uh, a deficit equity. from the previous car. I sold them everything possibly that they could add to this yeah. car, and they got approved. And but in many, like I, that one surprised me because usually when you have that ratio, it just they won't approve it. But that's crazy. I'm, I, I until you mentioned that story, I thought anybody could get a car loan. I, I didn't know they debt serviced. And the reason I'm saying that is because one of the biggest hindrances to people's finances when they're looking for a mortgage is usually a car loan. And I, I they they usually have a car loan before they apply for a mortgage. And I wish that wasn't the case because sometimes that's the thing that pushes their numbers over. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the times those folks don't have amazing credit either. So I'm like, how did they get this car loan? You know, it's I just funny assumed they would give it to anyone. In, in automotive, when you're looking for money, there's always somebody to lend you the money. That's fair. Okay. Um, it just depends on at what rate, what terms, what conditions. So it's actually not that different from what we do. Because in reality, no. there's always someone that'll give you money in our industry too. Just right. at a higher rate. and Much higher rate. Yeah. yeah. The and maybe the comparable or the similarities between it's funny we're talking about that but if you think about it there are a lot of similarities between getting a loan for the car or for your house i would always tell people uh, that it's harder to get a car loan than it is a mortgage because i don't know if it's true or not it was just what i would say uh, because depreciating asset versus appreciating well, not even Hopefully that appreciating. More just, if they if they want your house they know where it is right and if you stop paying yeah. your car bill they can't they may there's no guarantee they're going to find your car except for those lenders that oh, make, put a tracking device make or you have a tracking device do they do that yeah, oh, oh, yeah. those repo men will find you though oh yeah they'll yeah. find those you. guys are awesome <laughs> yeah. i love those shows but how often do you see somebody and you'll see that too from the applications. They're making $100,000 a year and driving a $100,000 car. It's like, okay, you're spending 1200 bucks a month on your car payment. Isn't that a bit excessive? You know? We see more than we'd like to. Yeah. It's like before I hit submit when we're pulling a credit report, I'm just like, please don't have a massive car loan. Yeah. And a lot of the times they do. I've had instances where people get creative because um, lines of credit, regardless of utilization, are, are calculated as fully utilized, right? Or partially. Like, so if you have a $100,000 home equity line of credit or $30,000 unsecured line of credit, mm -hmm. when they're doing the debt service ratio, even if you're at a zero balance, They'll, they'll calculate it based on a full balance? It's actually not true. That's not true? No. How do they do it? They just, they calculate it based on the balance, but they use 3% per month as a repayment just for underwriting. Okay. I know that's, so. 3% that of the total, total amount. Balance of the balance owing. So don't worry about the total amount. Don't worry about the limit, let's call it. Um, they're more concerned about the balance owing and they'll use a 3% per month repayment on that, even though in reality your payment is not 3% per month. So that's the buffer that they build in, but they won't do it on the limit. I've been told otherwise by other mortgage brokers. I have as certain well. banks will. I, so we so certain banks calculate it differently. Even, so by default, when we pull the credit, the underwriting system that we use now is calibrated to just use a 3% per month repayment. It won't even let you override it. And so, it doesn't matter if it's a home equity line of credit or unsecured. Um. It doesn't technically matter. Like I've, so I've seen instances in both scenarios. So if a mortgage broker said that they're not wrong about it, but in most cases they are more concerned about the balance owing, okay. especially on unsecured debt, a home equity line of credit, maybe a little bit different. Um, I think it's, I think it's very case specific. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's good to know. It's amazing how you can manipulate some of the numbers when you move things around. Right? Yeah. Well, and this this is why it's important. And I'm a big advocate of mortgage brokers uh, over bank. I don't even know if they're considered brokers. They're, mortgage they're just specialists. Agents or specialists, specialists yeah. yeah. Because you have a lot of options. So depending on the specific circumstances, the type of income, mm -hmm. self-employed or employed, whatever, you can 
you yeah. leverage your database of lenders to yeah. choose one that suits the person best. I, it, I do think there is some um, benefit or leverage mm-hmm. that you get when you have a mortgage with the lender or in this case, a bank that I've always, you do yeah, your primary always, banking. So if you have the mortgage with them, the visa with them, a line of credit, a checkings, a savings account, like if you got some RSPs, a GIC. I get like loyalty discounts or something. You get preferential treatment. You get better rates, potentially. You get all of those fees waived. Well, on some banks, like RBC doesn't work with brokers, right? They don't have a broker channel, no. They like yeah. to network with brokers a lot. Like you can send them business if you have a referral partner, so to speak. But um, is that like off the books? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us the dirty yeah. secrets of okay. the mortgage well, can we, can industry. Can we backtrack? Let me get the... let me get back to the question I had though. Where okay. is, so let's say you have somebody come in, sure, and well, let's give you an exact scenario and say it's one of these tenants that is like, okay, I'd like to buy a house at some point. Okay. And let's say they don't get approved. Um, but you, based on now you're, you've got knowledge of their income, their, you know, expenses and whatever, where does your relationship with them end? Is it just saying, sorry, you're not approved or is it, do you ever get into, okay, well, this is what you need to do. You need to save up X amount of money and, and how long would it take you to save that? Well, let's circle back in six months or a year. Uh, the relationship never truly ends. Like we don't put an end to it. We're kind of like, we'll see you later kind of people. Right. Um, so we do spend a lot of time with clients that won't be clients for a really long time. Uh, we've done that. We've nurtured deals over the course of three to four years before um, until they've materialized into business for us. And we're fine with that because it's all about resources. We want people to get in homes. Uh, it's not just about a deal now, a paycheck now. It's, yeah, we can be a good resource. And um we hope that people are disciplined enough to follow our advice. A lot of the times they're not. It's really hard to break someone else's financial habits, For sure. spending habits. Um, going back to the whole car thing as an example. I mean, this doesn't apply in every case, but to be honest with you, like nobody, nobody gives a shit about your possessions. This is what I always tell people. Like people don't care about the things you have as much as you care about the things you have. So if you are trying to save for something, uh, you have to be willing to buy less expensive things. Yeah, at the risk sacrifices. of not having that social currency when you're out in public, whether it's something you wear or a spending habit that you have, or a vehicle, or whatever it is, or eating out at fancy restaurants. I'm not saying don't ever do any of those things. You have to enjoy life a little bit, but when you're, especially when you're trying to save for something, you have to limit what you're buying, what you're spending your money on. Too many people have ambitions of upgrading their home or buying their first home and don't have an actual plan. Or budget. Or budget. Budget is probably the key word. And, or a plan to achieve their budget, their new budget. Yeah. Because oftentimes it takes sitting down, looking at where all your spending is or is going, and then realizing where you're going to save every month compared to your current spend and then actually sticking to that. Right. If you can't see where your money is going, like you have to be able to visualize money in, money out to know where it's going and where you can cut back to, to actually add towards savings. I'm so um, upset they're shutting down mint.com. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mint. I'm not surprised. What is mint? mint. It's a great source. It's a uh, mint. It's owned by, it's Intuit? now owned by, um, in, into it, into it. QuickBooks, the same Quick company books. that owns QuickBooks, Intuit, yeah, Intuit, maybe. Something okay. like that. And it basically funnels in all of your accounts and gives you your entire portfolio. So I have banking with basically all over the place and with our multiple businesses and many credit cards and things like that. So it brings all of your expenses, all of your income, everything from every bank account. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a screenshot of what are your expenses this month. It even learns your habits and categories. So it will understand SO is gas. Yeah. 
It will understand Superstore. It's great for is, searching for things. If you're yes, trying to search the end for the all year, of your gas. Hydro, as an example. Might, I do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Hydro breaks it down. It's great for people that are self-employed. And they have to tally everything up at the end of the year, it, which is usually I, when they wait to do things. I think yes. it's great for everybody because Especially a lot of people scenario. don't realize how much money you spend at Tim Hortons every month. Mm-hmm. What does that extrapolate over the year? Yeah. Holy shit, I spent 1500 bucks at Tim Hortons. Well, I got into a bit of a debate with somebody on Facebook recently who was saying, uh, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was along the lines of, oh, the, the premise of the conversation started because people were complaining about using tellers at a restaurant or at a grocery store or cashiers rather, or a self-checkout. And then it got onto cash versus credit and Anyways, it got very off topic, but the premise was that she was saying you should only use cash. And I was saying for the vast majority of people, it's a bad idea. And I never use cash when I, buying things. I don't either. I mean, Visa credit cards have many benefits from points to tracking uh, where your money is spent, which is where I was going with that. Exactly. If you're pulling out cash every month or you get paid in cash, whatever, you have no way of knowing at the end of the year what you spent it on. So, and not to mention also building your credit. So what was her rationale behind that? Well, she was a little bit of, she was uh conspiracy theory, theory, theorist, theorist, theorist. theorist. <laughs> uh, she was going into the direction of uh, digital currency and the government is going to control you. Oh, okay. So it was, a, it was a bit of like, she was the far extreme of it. Yeah. And and I realized very quickly that's not somebody you can have a logical conversation with. And and she did get me at one point though because she said, "Well, when Rogers went down, nobody could buy anything for the vendors that use Rogers systems." But um, my point is for the average person, and probably for people. Yeah, but that could be said about anything in life now. Yeah, you know. If, my, one, if an internet goes down, a satellite goes down, or whatever, we're all technology. Yeah. When you live in a country that is so dependent on credit, we don't live in France. France doesn't have a credit bureau reporting system. They don't have a credit system. They don't have credit. Credit, yeah. When you live in a country where everything's dependent on credit, you can't live by that philosophy. I don't understand how that would work then. I don't know how it works. I just know they don't have it. Um, Yeah. You fix my lawn, I fix your kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Barter barter system. You know, I am a big believer. I don't pay cash for anything that really anything. I I use my visa for everything so I can track it, collect points, build credit. It's easy. If I ever have cash on me, I usually give it to like the Salvation Army people standing at the front door. That's it. Well, now even that you can pay by your credit. You just tap. But as those that follow and listen... No, I like to buy and flip things or sell things around the house. And most of that, if it's not on eBay, like if I'm selling something on Facebook Marketplace, I would say at least 50% of the time it's in cash. The other 50 is uh, EFT. Mm -hmm. And that cash, you know, 50 bucks here, 50 bucks there. I have it in my pocket or in my briefcase. And that's the, you know... Free money. Yeah. So if I want to treat myself to an apple fritter like you brought (laughs) in this morning, which was delicious, by the way. Thank you. No problem. Shout out to, who was it? Where did you get it? Copper Kettle. Copper Kettle. And Waterdown. Very well known. Yeah. Very, very well known. And for a reason, they're magnificent. They were still warm when he brought them in this morning. So if you want to treat like that and you have some cash because you sold your old jacket from high school <laughs> that's a real story isn't it he sold <laughs> he's sold everything i've if you could think of stuff around your house that yeah. you have i have probably sold cool. something okay similar to that nice and i love going to auctions and the salvation army and what did i buy um a couple of a few weeks ago i bought what was comics? It? No, the book, the hardcover. Oh, a World of Warcraft. Book. World of Warcraft. You ever heard of yeah. Warcraft? Yeah. 
I knew nothing about it, but I know it's it's big. There's a lot of followers and avid avid um, players or whatever. And this book was hardcover, mm-hmm. eight and a half by eleven, had a soft touch to it. It was like the padded hardcover. Padded yeah. hardcover, yeah. soft touch. Ooh, this must be special. And it had a serial number on the back. And I opened it up and this thing had never been read or it was mint condition. And their hardcover books are five bucks or three $3.99. And what I didn't know is actually they were buy one, get one 50% off that day. There was another one I didn't buy. Anyway, so I bought it for $3.99. And I brought it here and I'm like, does anybody know what this is? (laughs) But I searched on eBay because eBay is real easy. You just take a picture or you use the UPC code as a, like a QR code. So it scans it and then it automatically shows you all the listings. And I go into the sold listings and I see, oh, they actually sell and there's not a lot of them available. So I listed it and sold it for basically made forty five dollars after fees and and shipping. Sold it for okay net net forty five. That's good. Net forty five on a three ninety nine purchase. Yeah, sold it for sixty. They paid the shipping, so then you have the eBay fees and. Be careful talking too much about this on the podcast because if the CRA determines that you do it as income, they're going to come (laughs) after you. There's a fine line maybe to a certain point, but eBay now charges GST and withholds that and remits it to the government for any purchases made. I'm talking income tax. Yeah, income tax, if you're under, I think, $30,000, you're fine. Like, how about all of these? But they won't treat that that three separate from what you... Total personal income. Yeah, total. Right. They're not going to come after you. You're fine. No, no, not for fifty bucks. Yeah, but I also can't use it for my mortgage approval. No, <laughs> no you can't. Actually, that is, come I had, on, Neil. I I get paid in dollar bills. <laughs> how how does it work with people? Like, there's so many new avenues of income nowadays that yeah. didn't exist. I mean, year, a couple of years ago, even like I had a I had a YouTuber. That's how we, he's a tenant in one of our properties that we listed, and actually that we that we manage. And his sole, sole, primary and sole source of income was through YouTube. Like, yeah, but that's all documented. That's legit is. income. So is, is that just considered self-employed income? That's bundled in as the same? Or do they look at it as higher risk? Or is there no... Influencer, huh? There's okay. higher risk. Uh, yeah, because you'll be making that money next year. They right, want to see financials. You can't... Um, well, you can... So there's A, A lending and there's B lending. A banks, the major banks, the big five, they're the ones that always want to see tax documents and financials. So if you can show them that, even if you're a YouTube star, and by the way, we did a deal four or five months ago for a YouTube, I call him a star. He's a friend. I'm not going to mention his name, um, but he has one point, almost 1.3 million followers. He has a cooking channel, cool. does very well. Um, and, uh, and and so whatever we showed financials, it's all documented. YouTube doesn't mess around. So that, that person stuff. is that the sole income? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's the merchandising side of things. You what sell- is somebody like that making currently? Um, somebody like that can make with the merchandise side of things. <laughs> yeah. You ready for this? Probably between five and seven hundred thousand. Crazy on on one point two million followers. Yeah. So there's different components of revenue. There's sure. the merch which is probably the biggest component than there's really? ad revenue, um, depending on how many views you get. Um, there's the ad revenue, and I think there's- If you're watching per- this on YouTube, <laughs> please make sure your friends subscribe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's crazy, but we just did our first deal for a YouTube star. And then to, to answer your question about other forms of income, a few years ago, nobody wanted to touch Uber. Nobody wanted to touch Airbnb. Right. Uh, Airbnb is still tricky. Um, most banks don't like Airbnb income because it's short term. Would that be considered like rental income? It is, but it's considered like inconsistent rental, regardless of how consistent it is. And Airbnb is fairly consistent, I think, if you have a nice property that you're renting. It's a bit volatile nowadays, depending on where you are. But so they, so for that reason, they consider it inconsistent. They want to see longer term leases. Uh, but if you're claiming it and you have claimed it for two years, then they will consider it. Interesting. 
So the gig economy or what we used to refer to as the gig economy is way more acceptable now. Nobody wanted to touch it before. What about, so I'll give an example of a waitress, waiter. They work at a nice restaurant. Maybe they're making min probably minimum wage for that, because minimum wage, I believe, is still different for servers. servers. But then they make $300 a night cash tips. Some of it might not get claimed on their income at the end of the year. We all know that. Is that like when a lender or you, when you look at an application for somebody that might make cash tips mm -hmm. and not claiming it all, you know that? I just hope you just cross your fingers when you submit it and hope they don't ask for proof of income. They yeah. No, they always will. <laughs> if it doesn't make its way to a bank account, you can't use it. doesn't that's, matter. There's that's no the difference maybe going back to the car industry. They didn't always ask for proof. Mm. If it was a solid credit score and a... You know, they didn't always ask for proof. You you were fortunate enough to benefit from that one time when you weren't employed. And I think he, when you got your first BMW. <laughs> I didn't have a job. Yeah. You got your I first BMW while you were unemployed? Yeah. Correct. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't have a job. I didn't have money. In fact, I was, let's just say I had just moved in to the new house. So big mortgage. Well, at that time, no job, no income, very little money, starting to build a lot of credit debt because that's when we started our business. And I walked into the BMW store and bought the car in the, the three series in the showroom. It wasn't that expensive of a car. I think maybe 50 grand at that time, but I got it. I had good credit. What? So here's a question for you. When you pull somebody's credit report, mm -hmm. I don't know if you pay much attention to the score. Do you? Uh, it's a component of it. It's yeah. a component. There's... What score? Is there a number where you look at it and go, okay, this is going to like, what's the threshold where the score comes back and you see 700? Okay, that's good. Or you see... 650 you go uh oh like is there are there triggers for you uh okay so in guidelines the minimum that most of the major banks say they'll accept is 600 but when we pull credit if i see something above i'm saying well above a 650 so let's high 600 680 690 i'm like okay we're good this is this is a quality credit score no issues. Really? High 600 is considered yeah. A quality. Yeah. So to get the best <clears throat> debt servicing ratio requirements on the A side, you just have to meet a minimum 680. Now, what happens if your credit score is over 750? It doesn't really make much of a difference after that point. In so time. If, you're you're around, nine. if you're around 700, yeah. all the way up to the 900, yeah. you're in the same, you have the same clout. Right. In fact, the, the big banks don't price rates based on credit scores okay. the b lenders do so the b lenders have the thresholds where if you fall in this range this is your interest rate so on and so forth a banks are you either make the cut or you don't so hypothetically if i have a good credit score let's say it's 800 that'd be considered pretty good right excellent yeah and my tdsr my total <laughs> debt service ratio right now is 55 to 60 percent high right i have a home i have a car maybe two cars got some line of credit credit cards whatever and i want to invest in real estate right now because it's a buyer's market and i've got a 25 percent deposit i want to buy a six hundred thousand dollar condo because there's lots of those on the market right now for a good deal. So I got 125 grand cash coming out of my savings. 
My debt service ratio is 55 to 60%. I've got an 800 credit score. What do you do with it, Mr. Broker? Strictly because of your debt ratios, you, despite your credit score being as good as it is, you are in the B category of lending. And because my credit score is 800, do the B lenders now give maybe a little bit preferred rate or in B lending you get world, the good, bad rate. you get the good, bad yeah, rate. You'll fall in the best threshold of, of rates, which is going to be but so 680 if my, and above. So in that scenario, if my credit score was 680 versus the 800, mm-hmm. I might not get the same rate. Uh, let's be more dramatic about it. Okay. Let's say your credit score is a 625. Okay. Then you're going to get a higher rate at 625 than you would at a score of 800. Right. Now, to answer your other question, going back to the whole credit score thing, when we pull it, if it's a 650, it's kind of on the fence. It's like, it could be an A deal, it could be a B deal. Why is your credit score 650? Because if you if you have perfect repayment history, your score should be higher than 650. And if it is 650, it could be because of multiple reasons. But we would let, we would go through the report and then try to figure out why why is it 650. How often will a lender listen to your story about how a credit score might be arrived at. So as an example- Divorce, or is there a, a very specific reason which shouldn't be, which should make the credit score right. less somebody, important. Somebody had COVID and couldn't work for six months and had no income during that time because benefits didn't cover it anymore or the government programs didn't cover them anymore, whatever. Somebody had an illness, off work for six months and was late on- three different payments and it dropped the score down to a 625 and they're back on their feet. Mm-hmm. They got their job again or a similar job in a similar industry, making similar money. So that elapsed. Is the lender listening to that story? Stories are worth their weight in gold now. We're really good at storytelling, by the way. We're good at putting that together. That blurb, the underwriter wants to see that, mm-hmm. especially if there's something to Something of concern in that application, even if it's a small little blip, that story helps. In fact, for one of the first times ever, we are funding a deal two two and a half weeks from now, two weeks from now. Uh, there's two applicants on title. One has a 700 and something credit score. The other one has a 570. And the 570 was caused for something so ridiculous. And you can see it on the report. It's like, that should never have happened. She never would have let it happen. Who would? for something that small. And the story helped us get approved for an insured deal through one of the insurers. And that would never fly because they have a minimum cutoff. Now, the co-applicant being as strong as they are helped, but four or five years ago, they never would have looked at that. We told a story around it. We provided sufficient proof. It got approved. I wasn't expecting it to, but I was willing to try anyways. And it worked. And so that's just proof that the story helps a lot. And I would imagine... For self-employed people, even those that don't have a 500 score, but if they're somewhere in the middle or you're trying to go to bat for them to get a better rate or better terms, whatever, having that story and knowing, like as an example, realtors now Mm -hmm. are able to be a corporation and get paid their commissions in the corporation. Some years, you might, Adrian, pay yourself a little bit less or a little bit more. You might have a salary. I think you pay yourself a salary. I do not. I take dividends. So there is a story to tell. Mm. Especially with people who are self-employed. It's actually where stories come in most handy. It's with that, those types of scenarios. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot for a couple of things. Sure. And I'll paint a picture. Okay. Because really, it all starts with the two of our, or the three of our services. When you want to buy a house, you got to find the money and a realtor. If you had a first-time home buyer. That was 
new to the market completely. So let's say Robbie has an ambition to buy a home. And he says to me, Ariel, I, I want to buy my first. Are you listening, Robbie? Yes, you are. Of course you are. He says, I want to buy my first home, Ariel. I need to get out of mom and dad's house and mom's house and tired of my brothers and whatever. He's laughing, tired of his <laughs> brothers. Eh? So as a realtor, our first step is to find out a little bit about, in this case, Robbie, you know, what his goals are. Maybe talk a little bit about how much money he has to invest in real estate. But ultimately, it comes down for us to seeing what he qualifies for, right? That would be logical first step. So for those listening that might want to buy their first home, how do you, what's your advice to set up first-time home buyers to make their process smoother or to help them get approved? So if that person is already at a stage where they've saved up down payment and they don't require a lot of guidance throughout years to get to that point, then, and, and Steve Chiquetto, who I work with often through your brokerage, uh, is, is huge on this. Um, in his own respectful way, he would tell his clients, listen, I'll go out and show you properties, but I'm not going to do it until you speak to a broker and get pre-qualified. So I don't understand why it ever happens in the opposite way. And we've seen it happen firsthand where people have gone out and committed to properties, uh, firm deals, so no condition for financing. And then only after that have gone to seek out financing. And they've run into some serious problems and happened without all, starting the process at all. Without starting the process at all. And I never understood it. So I'm not saying don't talk you know, to It's the same thing. We go back to the car business. Same thing about going for a car. Right. You can walk into a Lamborghini store and go, oh, I love this. Let's buy <laughs> one. And then you sit down in the finance office and it's like, uh, sir, you make $100,000 a year. This car is $450,000. Yeah. So I'm not even saying don't ever talk to a realtor until you get pre-qualified. Loop your realtor in. Say, hey, listen, I, I'm working with this realtor. Before we go out to see properties, we'd like to get pre-qualified. Why would you not do it that way? Let's see what your options are first. You need to know your maximum affordability. And then I always encourage people to stay a little bit under that. If they well, there's, there's so many reasons to do it. And that's why it's a, it's, um, a process that all of our team members follow to do that first. Because you want to make sure, <clears throat> one, you're not looking at houses that are too expensive. Because it's hard to go backwards. Right. It's hard. People get very discouraged when they find out they can't afford the house they did want. And then they take forever to fall in love with something else. I told you I like the house with the pool. Right. The other option is maybe they get approved for more than they thought they would. Right. doesn't mean they want to spend that much more, but maybe it means they can move into another category of home that satisfies their needs better. Um, and the other part, too, is when you have the approval, it can, especially in this market, become very, a very valuable tool in negotiating when you have a solid approval. And this, by the way, is also good advice for anybody that's just thinking of doing a real estate transaction. It doesn't necessarily have to be specific to first-time homebuyers, but sticking on the first-time homebuyer because they're the ones that need the most guidance. Although I will say I've dealt with a lot of people that have upgraded their homes and missed chunks of the process because they thought they knew. So processes have changed a lot. Requirements have changed a lot. So if you haven't bought a home and the last two or three years, chances are there's a lot that has changed. So if you were to give advice to these buyers on how to get prepared for what you are going to need, how can they get prepared now so a meeting or a call or whatever with a broker can be a lot smoother and expedited quicker? To be honest, I feel like preparing can happen shortly after that initial consultation. Like, I don't like to make people prepare too much ahead of time. I think starting with the call is the most important thing. Then we'll give you guidance on what you need to actually get the pre-approval. Because it always starts with the call first. 
then we'll take you through the pre-approval process. But a saying that my dad has always said for years, and keep in mind, he started the business and ran it during a very different time than now. He always says a pre-approval is not worth more than the paper it's written on, which used to be true. That's because most brokers and banks back then would just give you a pre-approval at face value based on the application you submitted to them. I don't care. You can put whatever you want on an application and submit it for approval. But how we've changed that is now we're we're almost fully underwriting a deal as though it is a live deal, firm deal. We're asking for supporting documents, maybe not all of them, but a good chunk of them to make sure that we're doing our due, due diligence so that when we give you the pre-approval, you can actually depend on it. What are the supporting documents that you always require or potentially could require? Aside from ID, uh, we... So let... It's, it's tricky. So I don't have to do letter of employment because by the time I ask for it and by the time you have to then provide it to a bank later on, it gets outdated. So rather than being redundant and asking for it twice. How long would it be good for? 30 days? About 30 days, some sometimes 45 based on an exception from the bank. Um, but 30 gets outdated. Then you've got to ask your employer for another one. But pay, most recent pay stub, uh, the last two years, T4s, if you're like if you're salaried, um, T4s are helpful. Sometimes NOAs. Uh, just to make sure that you don't owe a lot of personal taxes, uh, bank statements to support the down payment that you have. The, the banks need to know where the money is coming from. Usually it has to be from your own sources and your own sources can also include gifted money, but they don't like borrowed money. So if you show me six months worth of bank statements and there's zero dollars in there, they're going to be like, well, where is the down payment coming from? So they have to trace all the money, but I would ask for those. And then anything else that might be needed is just something the bank's coming back with later on based on, what you've provided to them, there may be further questions and further supporting documents needed. Child tax benefit is another one. You get it, we can use it as income. So show us the latest notice. Depending on the age of the kids. <clears throat> yeah, depending on the age, year, of course. They may not consider uh, yeah, yeah, of course. I think the minimum age is 12 for most five-year mortgages. But if you're getting a shorter-term mortgage, we can strategize with that a little bit. So I think... One of the questions to wrap this up because we've gone longer than we usually do, but the there's two topics we kind of touched on. But one thing that I just want to finish on is in last week's episode, we gave our forecasts for 2024 okay. for the real estate market in terms of where we see values. This is airing in the new year, by the way. So happy new year. Happy new happy year. New year. <laughs> this is our first episode of the new year. Correct. Where do you see um, mortgage rates uh, or even mortgage guidelines going in 2024? Uh, okay. So I'm going to answer that in two parts. There's rates and there's policy. Okay. So policy is what the banks use to underwrite. And I think banks are at their most competitive time ever. So that sounds funny because we're at the highest rates ever. So how are they the most competitive? And it's because policy is changing. Sometimes policy is tightening, sometimes it's loosening. Banks are really, really trying to drum up new business. And so they are getting more creative with their internal policies to make it easier for people to buy. So they're governed by B20. OSFI comes out with these rules and they have to abide by those rules, but there are certain rules that they can flex on to make it easier to kind of offset sure. some of the tightening that has happened. And so we're bombarded with emails on a weekly basis of banks that are trying to come out with a niche point of difference. Some of them are stupid and we're just like, that is not a point of difference. Like, thanks for the email, but that's not enough. And then sometimes banks are coming out with policies that are like, oh, okay, that could help people who are self-employed. Um, you but mean it, a free iPad mini isn't <laughs> yeah. going to incent it's you It's such to- BS sometimes, like the incentives. Like this is a house. This is so much more than a free anything um, or a, a, the possibility of a, a vacation from a draw. Like it's not about that. It's about change your policy, make it easier for people to get into homes and to get into homes at the prices they want to. Right. Uh, and so we're going to see a lot of that in 2024. So my forecast is that policy is going to be a huge game changer in 2024 and onwards. Third and fourth, third and fourth quarter for the banks weren't looking so good. No, actually, I'm just going to grab a forecast. I printed it off. Am I I good? Okay. So this is TD's forecast for rates. Uh, you guys can keep this after, I don't know, maybe you already keep up to date with it. I just choose TD. For no particular reason other than I like their forecasts. Um, So interest rates are expected. Well, the overnight lending rate or the policy rate is expected to start dropping by quarter two of next year. 
and each one of the quarters following all the way until the end of 2025, which is when this prediction or forecast ends, it's expected to drop almost by a half or a quarter percent each time until we get to a policy rate of 2.25 by the end of 2025. Which is half of what it is, more than half. Of more than half is. of what it is now. We're at 5% right now. Yeah. It's going to go down to 2.25 based on this forecast, which means rates, as soon as rates start Which to, means first realtors are going to go broke or bankrupt. And then they're going to get, get rich of the again. business. And then got to pay back all of that debt in 2025. And that's okay because you weed out the people that are not great <laughs> exactly. in this industry anyways. Yes. We always need that cyclical period to weed out people, even in our industry. I like you, I'm, Neil. Yeah. I'm a huge component of that. So, um, The time where this may not hold true is if a reduction causes um, a spike in inflation again, like people go crazy and the market goes nuts. The Bank of Canada won't allow that, so they'll 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 say, okay, well, we're not rates are going back up. Of course, they, they're going to want to maintain. Yeah, but how much pressure will there be from the big banks too? They won't. But matter. this is when you're going to start to get interest again, and people will slowly trickle back yeah. into the market as long as it's done in a controlled manner, while also maintaining policy that kind of offsets this. Because that's the problem that happened. There was really loose policy and very low rates for a longer than expected time. And so anybody could go out and get a mortgage higher than they could possibly afford when there was an interest rate hike. So could I have made the movie, the big, uh, the big short, big short Canada. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it weren't for the whole insured versus uninsurable thing where, you know, you had to put 20% down on a million plus, they wouldn't let private lenders go or they wouldn't let B lenders go above 80%. Private lenders also scaled back to maximum 85, which now they're probably kicking themselves in the asses for because oh, for sure. um, some of those lenders are in deep water too, right? But we're going to start to see a spike again. And I just think with effective policy, in addition to lowering the rates, we're going to have a nice balanced market. Now, everyone needs to reset expectations. We're not going to see pandemic level rates again for a very long time, decades possibly. Only if there was another pandemic type, type situation would they need to re-stimulate the economy like that. Um, but everyone needs to reset their expectations to healthy rates, which generally fall in like three and a half to four percent range. That's healthy. Yeah. Dude, well, they. I heard rumors. Um, I don't know where I heard it. Actually, something to do with adjustments to the stress test, either removing it or lowering it. Or well, they already adjusted it for previously insured mortgages so now if you are doing something called oh, a refund it it's sorry not a refinance that actually doesn't qualify if you're doing a switch or a transfer and you were originally insured then you now have the flexibility to go to a different bank for a better rate without having to requalify the stress test they'll right. qualify you at the at the post that's a, rate that's a big deal it's a big deal except think about all the uninsured mortgages that happened over the last three to four years Everyone was buying a million plus, or most people were buying a million plus. Those weren't even right. insured mortgages, so those don't even qualify. And a lot of those people are the ones that really need the help. True. So we'll see what kind of loosening in policy happens between now and mid-next year. But next year is looking good in terms of home ownership. So I think we will see that spike again. And so based on these sort of projections, are you advising people to go with like a fixed rate for a short term? Uh, necessarily. naturally people are already choosing that by default. People yeah. are thinking, okay, let me try to time the market and let me do a two or three year fixed term. And then rates will be a lot better. And they're probably going to be right, but there's also a possibility that we could all be wrong. Cause these are all just forecasts. Yeah. Oftentimes forecasts are historically, they've always been wrong. They've been <laughs> wrong estate, or yeah. the timing has been off. Yeah. Uh, you know, this could take three years instead of a year and a half to get to that. That rating. seems more practical. Yeah. That seems very quick to me. It does. Does it? It's, that's two years. But Three years, really, since the rates started going up. And they have an entire team dedicated to making these forecasts based on data and the trajectory of the data based on history, right? So I, I, I feel like they're accurate and maybe one or two in here may not happen, depending on how inflation whether it increases or decreases. Yeah. But. Immigration, lack of supply, well, spending habits. Yeah. No lack of supply right now. Be, I'll be really interest, 
really, really interested to see the results from the last quarter of 2023 in terms of spending and in terms of just what what happened in financial markets and i think a lot of people are are holding their money a little bit closer right now and that's the first time in a long time that i i felt that way in in our market and hmm. certainly in the GTA if you guys are going to wrap up can i wrap up with a little story yeah just based on my experience i love storytelling yeah. okay cool so um my wife and just i don't fuck it up because there's, I'm not no gonna, there's no editing okay my wife and i just got back into a home after almost two years of selling our previous home okay because we decided we wanted to piss off steve and just make him <laughs> really work for his commission um but so it took <laughs> almost two years we took our time with it and so the objective when we sold in november 2021 was we need a change, but we don't want to rush back into a house. And that was priority number one. A secondary thought was, okay, maybe we can also benefit from the inevitable decline in the market, which did also happen. And I think we still benefited, benefited from, but we still, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. And, it, and it's irrelevant. I'll tell you why. Over the course of that two-year period, and the reason I'm telling the story, by the way, is for people who are first-time buyers, who are maybe renters now who maybe want to buy and don't know how to get there, don't know how they're going to feel about it. But during that two-year period, we temporarily lived in about 13 different Airbnbs. Wow. Could have been more than that. I didn't realize that number was that high. Yeah. So we moved 13. probably 15 times, but maybe 13, wow. 12 to 13 different Airbnbs because there are certain ones we went back to a second time just because we liked it so much. So we stayed everywhere from Burlington, Oakville, um, Innisfil, Collingwood, wealth and so my wife was responsible for all of that she's uh she's amazing for that and so she was trying to find airbnbs and sometimes we were limited but in each one of those places so it's just myself diana and our dog chewy we were able to make each one of those places feel like home okay but we knew it was temporary so would i want to do that for 10 years no was i okay doing it in that two-year time frame yes but the point of the story is that in each one of those whether it was an amazing Airbnb or an okay Airbnb, we made it feel like home. And so why I'm telling the story is for people that are renting, uh, for people that want to get into the housing market, I think resetting expectations is really important. It can't be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be the detached home. It doesn't have to be a semi-detached versus not wanting to live in a condo. Like start somewhere. You will make it feel like home. And after two years of doing that, which was a really exciting experience, getting back into our own house, there's nothing like it. There's no feeling like it. It was really cool to not have to worry about cutting grass and yeah. having to maintain things that were falling apart or breaking. But we have no regret with buying a house again because home is home. Any Airbnb horror stories? Uh, <laughs> there was one which we were only in for a week and uh, I actually got COVID when I was at that one. So it was like, it made it f much worse, but it was, uh, supply was very limited. And so it was a basement apartment and my head was touching the ceiling oh throughout most of the basement. So wow. not a legal basement apartment. No. <laughs> and so we, when we got, she had no idea she was fine in there, but we got in there and I'm like, I lost it. I'm like, no, we can't stay here. So we got most of our money back and we found a different place, which was way nicer. That would make for good leg, leg exercises throughout the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just squatting the whole day. All right. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's a good conversation. Thanks for tuning in and watching this episode of KT Confidential. Let us know your forecast for the 2024 mortgage and real estate industry by commenting below. And if you want more details and updates on what's happening with mortgages, make sure you subscribe to Neil's podcast. Will You Mortgage Me? Which and you is, can find that on Spotify, Anchor, and directly on our website at cmsmortgages.ca. There you have it.